This morning in Mark chapter 11, 27 to 33, we looked at Christ's authority being questioned and rejected by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Mark records what happened next in chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Jesus Christ begins to teach in parables. You'll remember why Jesus Christ taught in parables. It wasn't to use earthly illustrations so that people could understand the truth better. But Mark chapter 4 verse 12 says, Jesus Christ taught in parables so that they who are outside of the kingdom would not understand them. For seeing, they see, but do not perceive. Hearing, they hear, but do not understand. But those who are in the kingdom, they do have eyes to see and ears to hear, and therefore understand the mystery of the kingdom. And so though the Pharisees, sorry, the the scribes and the priests and the elders know this parable is against them, they do not know the mystery of this parable. But you'll notice in verse 1, Mark says that Jesus taught many parables, plural. And if you read Matthew chapter 21 to 22, you will find the plurality of parables our Lord taught. For example, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the wedding feast. But whereas Jesus Christ here taught plural parables, Mark's focus is on one. The parable of the wicked tenants. And this parable is given to illustrate that the Sanhedrin's rejection of Jesus Christ's authority is to be understood in a bigger way. Their rejection of Christ is only an example of Israel's rejection of God. And this rejection is seen in this parable in three ways. One, God's servants rejected. Two, God's son rejected. Three, God's salvation rejected. What is the Old Testament background to this parable? The Jews knew their Bibles. And when they heard this taught, they knew that Jesus Christ was using the language of Isaiah chapter 5, which we read earlier. And when you read Isaiah chapter 5, God is coming to judge Israel for their disobedience. But look at the language that's used the well-beloved, the song of my beloved. Israel is described as a vineyard. There's a fence around this vineyard. 
There's a wine press. There's a tower built. And he says, go bear fruit. And when he finds that Israel was not bearing good fruit, it says, God will judge his people. And when you read this parable, the language and description of Isaiah chapter 5 is the same language of Mark chapter 12. And so Isaiah chapter 5 is not only the picture background, but is the theological key to interpret the passage. The man of the vineyard is Jehovah, the God of Israel. And he has planted a vineyard. This is the biblical language of God's grace in redeeming Israel. We sung Psalm 80. It says in verse 8, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt, and thou hast cast out the heathens and planted it. So God, in his covenant love, with his stretched out arm, comes to his people suffering in misery as slaves in Egypt. He takes them from Egypt and he plants them in the land of Canaan. He removes the nations. He dwells in the midst of the land and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God does everything necessary and possible for Israel to be abounding in fruit. It says here in this parable that he set a hedge around the vineyard. This keeps out animals and thieves. He, he builds a, the wine fat or the wine press so that all the luscious grapes can be taken in, they can be squashed, and the juices can be held, waited to be bottled into wine or whatever you want. And God, he, he builds a tower so that people can come to the tower as watchmen, look over the vineyard, and no one is going to come in and steal the fruit. Then he describes the Israelites as husbandmen or as vine dressers, gardeners if you like. And as Isaiah chapter 5 verse 4 says, what else could I have done? There was nothing more I could do to make you more fruitful. Everything was ready and prepared and you should be a fruitful people. You should have faith in me. You should be humble and of a contrite spirit. There should be a love filling your soul for who I am and what I have done for you. You should be showing mercy brother to brother, neighbor to neighbor. There should be justice in the land and no oppression. 
There should be holiness internally and externally. Godliness should be in every home. Piety should be real and vital. And everyone should be conscious of the glory of God. Here is everything. Be fruitful, Israel. And it's the same for us today. Everyone who is in the visible church, God by His grace has planted you. Maybe you were born into a Christian home. Why? Why are you not born to a heathen home, an unbelieving home, where you would never have any opportunity or understanding or knowledge of the truth? But he didn't. He graciously planted you in the church. Or maybe you were born outside of the covenant. But maybe by his goodness, he had drawn you into the visible church. He's planted you. And as he set the hedge, the tower and the wine press, he has done all things well in the church. He has done everything possible for fruitfulness. He has the gathering place of God's people every Lord's Day to Lord's Day. He has his special promises that he will come and be with us. He has given us the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4. He says that Christ has ascended and given gifts unto men for pastors and teachers to build up the people of God, to edify them till they come to the full stature of the measure of Christ. He's given the wonderful gospel of free grace as is expounded in his word week after week after week. He's given you prayer, access with God at any time. He's given you the psalms, the hymns of Jesus Christ by the Spirit. He's given you the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He's given you a Sabbath day of rest, as we saw this morning, so we can focus entirely of heaven on earth. He has given you maybe Christian parents or Christian friends or a Christian fellowship and community We're in 2021, resources abound, good books, good literature, good resources, sermons, lectures and teaching at the very tips of our hands. He has given us everything for life and godliness, everything so that we in the visible church may bear fruit. Do you realise that, brother and sister? Maybe you're thinking you need to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're thinking you need to grow in prayer. Maybe you think you need to bear the fruit of the Spirit more. Maybe you're thinking, well, if only if I had more. You have everything available for you. Use what's available and you will see God bearing fruit through you as you abide in Jesus Christ. Since God has made everything ready, he therefore expects fruit. He expects faith and love and humility and justice and mercy and piety 
And so God sends a uh, uh, verse 2. It says, at the season, at the harvest, he sent a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen, from the vine dressers of the fruit of the vineyard. The servants in this parable are prophets of God. In the Old Testament, uh, the prophets are described as servants. For example, Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 25, Since the day that your fathers came forth from Egypt, I have sent unto you all my servants, the prophets. And the servants come and they speak in the name of God. Thus saith the Lord. And they come with a message from God. And they've come to see fruit in the people of God. And he's come to the church for the same thing. God sends his servants of the New Testament preachers, ministers, pastors, teaching elders, call them what you want. And they're preaching and declaring and expositing and heralding. And the expectation from God is that every individual in the church would bear fruit. Faith, holiness, love, etc., etc. And how does Israel respond? Verse 3, and they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. They've rejected him, they've rejected his message, and therefore they've rejected God himself. They might have religion, they may have the true religion but they do not have the heart of religion. And therefore when the servants come, they beat him and send him away. What does God do? Destroy them? Verse 4, And again he sent them Another servant. Isn't that wonderful? And how do they respond to the servant? And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. They rejected the servant again. They reject the servant's message again. And therefore they reject God himself again. And what does God do now? He sends another servant. And he sent another. And how did they respond this time? And they killed him. Surely that's it. Three strikes and you're out. Is that not what we say? Is that not how we may treat people? God sends another and another and another and another. And how do they respond? They beat some. They shame some. They kill some. 
again and again and again. They reject God and reject God and reject God and reject God. And this is the story of Israel. Though God sent servant after servant after servant, though they rejected and rejected and rejected, and God responded by sending servant after servant after servant. Jeremiah 25 verse 4, The Lord hath sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, but ye have not hearkened nor inclined your ear to hear. And Jesus Christ describes this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 34. Behold, I send unto you prophets, some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues, and persecute them from city to city. And Jesus Christ gives an example where he says that the blood of Zacharias whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. If you read 2 Chronicles 24, 20-21, the Spirit of the Lord comes to Zacharias. Zacharias preaches God's word to Israel. And it says, they stoned him with stones. What do you see in these verses? You should see the glory of your God. And the glory of God shines forth in this. He is long-suffering. The Bible uses different words to translate long-suffering. It can be long-suffering, forbearing, slow to anger. When you see these words, they're often Three terms for the same Hebrew word. And the Bible is very clear. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy. Or Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger. The Lord does not merely act Impatience or forbearance or long-suffering or slow to anger. He is long-suffering, forbearing, slow to anger. But what do we mean exactly by he is long-suffering? Well, the idea is the power of self-restraint for a merciful purpose. Or, A.W. Pink's definition, the patience of God is that excellency which causes him to sustain great injuries without immediately avenging himself. Or, the definition of a Puritan, Edward Lee. He says, the patience of God is that attribute whereby he bears the reproach of sinners and defers their punishments. Or it is the most bountiful will of God, whereby he does long bear with sin, which he hates, sparing sinners 
not minding their destruction, but that he might bring them to repentance. Isn't that just wonderful? God's long-suffering is that he restrains his anger, restrains his holiness to punish sin and sinners for the purpose of showing mercy and giving them time to repent and to come to him. And the purpose of this is Jesus Christ. It's always Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God, speaking of Jesus Christ, God hath set forth Jesus Christ to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Think of Adam's fall. Why did God not take Adam into hell and Eve as well into hell forever? Because he's long-suffering. He restrained himself so that Adam and the human race would be brought to faith in Jesus Christ, culminating, as Paul says, in the cross, the wrath-bearing not upon his people, but upon the Saviour at the cross. Think about Israel's sins. You read Genesis to the last prophet. You read the stubbornness and the wickedness and the rebellion and the refusal again and again and again and again. And God restrains himself. Slow to anger. Forbears. And sends messages of hope and gospel and grace and turning again and again and again and again. Though they spit in his face, he turns around and gives his face again and again and again. That's God's long-suffering. And just to take this doctrine which flows from this parable, God is long-suffering to unbelievers. Why do unbelievers have life and good things and family and friends and jobs and skills and talents and vacations and food and hobbies and all these things and more? Because God is long-suffering. Romans chapter 2 verse 4, the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. I give you all these good things and I am not casting you into hell so that you will hear and see my goodness and you will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's God. That's God. And because God is long-suffering toward the unbelievers, he is ever, ever willing to save them. 
Ezekiel 33 verse 11, to a people who will not accept his authority. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? There's no reason that you should die. There's no reason you should perish. There is no reason whatsoever. I do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. I will not destroy you. I will not obliterate you. I will not consume you. I am giving you life and all these things Turn to me, turn to me, and you shall live. And Jesus Christ personifies that. Remember a moment ago we read Jesus Christ's words in Matthew chapter 23 of how Israel treats prophets. You slay them, you crucify, you kill them, and then how does he respond? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings, and ye would not. The word translated would is the ordinary word for will. Israel, God came to you with the good news of salvation. God came to you with mercy and grace. And I was willing to save you. But you were not willing. There is no excuse for not being converted. There is no argument against God for not being a true believer in Jesus Christ. He is willing but you are not willing. I am long-suffering and I send preacher after preacher, sermon after sermon, Bible reading after Bible reading, family worship after family worship, and you will not hear me. Do you want to know why God is so long-suffering? It's because he's love. Remember 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul's saying we should love? Paul, teach us how should we love. Love is long-suffering. And how loving is God? He is long-suffering and loving towards all of mankind without exception. Are you a Calvinist? Listen to John Calvin. So wonderful is his love towards mankind that he would have them all to be saved and is of his own self prepared to bestow salvation on the lost. God is ready to receive all to repentance so that none may perish. Do you know what the problem is with denying the free offer of the gospel, the well-meant offer of the gospel? Do you know what the real problem is? It's an attack on the character of God. It's turning God who is love into a God who is not love. It's an attack on the long-suffering 
of God. Calvin's God is my God. Calvin's God is the Bible's God. And Calvin's God is Jesus Christ. I was willing to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Because for God so loved the world, mankind, that he gave his only begotten son. And it's shown in this parable, despite the beatings and the killings and the rejections, God is long-suffering and in his love offers himself again and again and again. But God is also long-suffering to you, brother and sister. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says that God is long-suffering. He is not slack in his promise. And he is willing that none shall perish but be brought to repentance. And J.C. Ryle commenting on the parable of the tenants says, We should learn to be more thankful for God's mercy. We have probably little idea of the extent of the Lord of the vineyard who is constantly sending to our souls. The last day will unfold to our wonderful, to our wondering eyes a long list of unacknowledged kindnesses of which while we lived we took no notice. Mercy we shall find was indeed God's darling attribute. Mercies before conversion. Mercies after conversion. Mercies at every step of our journey. Mercies in providence. Mercies sparing. Mercies in the ways of warning. Mercies in the ways of sudden visitation. We shall all find that God was often speaking to us when we did not hear and sending us messages when we did not regard. Few texts will be brought out to prominence at the last day than that of Peter. The Lord is patient towards us, not willing that any should perish. How often do we sin and fail and don't get it and God is long-suffering? How often do we stumble and we're blind and ignorant, even as Christians, and do foolish things again and again and again? And God is long-suffering and is not willing that any of his people perish. Why are you a believer today? Why have you not ultimately fallen? Why are you going to be a believer if you're in Christ for the rest of your life and you're never going to fall? Because God is personally long-suffering towards you. This wonderful long-suffering is in God sending servants to the rejecting Israel. But the apex, the apex of his long-suffering is seen in verse 6. What does God do to rejecting Israel of servant after servant? Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. Who can understand God? Who can understand God? All this hatred, all this rebellion, all this heart 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 hardness, all this sin, 
all this killing and beating and shaming his own prophets and servants. But his thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And you know what he does for such a sinful, disgusting, cesspit-filled people? He sends his one son. He sends the only eternally begotten son. He takes his well-beloved son, whom he loves and is pleased with, And he says, I will give my son for my people. Surely they will reverence him. That's what God does in Jesus Christ through the gospel every day. He goes to Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses and Roman Catholics and secularists and self-righteous religious people. He comes to murderers and thieves and rapists and pedophiles and the most wicked of all sorts. And he says, I offer you my well-beloved son. That's the gospel. The word reverence means this. Will not act in shame and therefore respect. Imagine a boss and he, sells, and he sends his assistants to his employers to command them to do certain things and the employers take no notice, don't care, mock them and send them away. And then the boss sends his son. They might have no shame to reject the servants, but surely they will not dare shame the son but respect him. So why did Jesus Christ come? Many reasons. One reason, because God loves rebellious Israel. That's why Christ came. I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as he came and preached to them, how did they respond? Seven to eight. They said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. The son came, they rejected him, and they killed him. And that's exactly what Israel are going to do to Jesus Christ as they've rejected the servants, they've rejected God, as they've rejected the son, they reject God. They're going to crucify the Lord of glory, signifying they reject Jehovah himself. And there's judgment to be had. It says here in verse 9, What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He shall come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others. I'm taking away the kingdom of God. Matthew makes this clear in his parallel account. Matthew 21, 43. The kingdom of God shall be taken away from you and given to a nation, bringing forth fruit thereof. I'm taking away the promises. I'm taking away the gospel. I'm taking away salvation. It's not for you anymore. That can happen to an individual, a family, and a nation. How can we neglect so great 
a salvation. God's long-suffering has come to you, and if you're unconverted, do not neglect this wonderful offer of Christ. Accept, believe, and love the Son of God. Now, if you stopped here, you might think God's failed. There's a vineyard. There's to be fruitfulness. There is no fruit. There's judgment. But Christ turns to the Bible. He quotes Psalm 118, 22 to 23. And he says, Have you not read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. Why does he quote this psalm? It's not only for the theological truth, but because of the word association. In the Hebrew, the word son and stone only has one word difference. Son is Ben, the son of someone. Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And stone is Eben, just an E. And as the son has been rejected in the parable, Ben, he comes to Psalm 118.22 where the Eben is rejected. The builders here are the builders of Israel, the religious leaders representing all of Israel. They look at this stone and they don't like it and they reject it and they crucify it. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 10 to 11, it says that this stone represents Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross and then being raised from the dead. And as he's raised from the dead, this stone which was rejected and discarded has become the cornerstone of the house of God which is being built upon it. And remember what he said, I am taking away this vineyard from you and giving to others. I'm giving to the Gentiles. As Romans chapter 11 teaches through their unbeliefs, they've been taken away from the olive tree and the Gentiles are being brought in. God has not failed. The Son of God being rejected is no failure. It was God's sovereign salvation. Through the rejection of the Son of God, God is saving his people from their sins. Why are you a believer? Because God took away the vineyard from the Jews and gave to the Gentiles. And you might ask, well, does that mean the Jews are done with forever? No. Romans 11. In the future, God is going to engraft again the Jews. Romans eleven fifteen, For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. But God's plan 
is that because his people rejected him, he will judge them, he'll destroy their temple, he'll destroy their priesthood, he'll destroy their sacrificial system, and to this day they have none of these things. And he cast them out of the land. But why has Israel returned to the land? Because God's fulfilling his purposes. Even though we rejected him and he judged them, he is still going to be long-suffering and merciful and save them again. But Jesus Christ is here saying, you reject me, you reject God, and the kingdom of God is coming away from you, Sanhedrin and Israel. How should we respond to this truth? In two ways. One, Humble faith. When Paul teaches the Gentiles in Romans 11 that God has taken away the kingdom from the Jews but will in the future be saved, he says, Because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Don't be arrogant. Don't be presumptive. Don't have external religion like the Jews. Oh God, (laughs) he'll judge you too. Have faith in Christ and bear fruit. God's given you everything possible for fruit. Now use it. You have Christ, abide in him. You have the church, attend the means of grace. You have word and prayer. You have fellowship. Use it, have faith and bear fruit. The second application, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our eyes. Is salvation marvellous to you? I'm not asking do you agree with the statement. I'm not asking you think you should be marvelled. I'm asking in reality, are you marvelled at salvation? How does Paul respond when he's giving the gospel He's talking about sin and the wrath of God, justification in Christ by propitiation. We're Romans 6, we're slaves of righteousness. We have wrestling in sin, Romans 7, but there's no condemnation of the Spirit that God and his sovereign plan, though saved a remnant of the Jews, that the Jews have rejected, the Gentiles have come in to make them jealous, and then in the end he will save them. How does Paul respond Oh, the depths. Oh, the depths of the riches. How unsearchable are his judgments. His ways past finding out. For from him, through him, and to him be all things. To God be glory forever. That's marvelling. If we read the parable of the wicked tenants and do not marvel, we have not read it again. We have not read it properly. If we can hear the truths of being expounded in God's long suffering and taken away and bringing out and graciously giving us salvation in Christ and Christ is the chief cornerstone, we must marvel for the sovereignty and the wisdom and the graciousness and the long suffering of our God. Let us here today marvel and worship 
our God and sing with our souls all the depths and the riches of God. This is the Lord's doing and is marvellous in our sight. Let us pray.